You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Jace Williamson. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have your Bible, I would love to invite you to turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 39 to 47 this morning. Um, It's always a privilege to be with you, uh, even when Mike gets to brag about playing golf with alligators. That sounds even cooler, right? Um, And so, and he came out with with both hands, and that's really great. It's really great. But um, it's really, really a privilege always to be with you uh, on Sunday morning. Um, But let me check, uh, just catch you up really quick if you have not been with us in this series. We're in a series in the Gospel of John uh, looking uh, pretty intently, just going verse by verse, uh, pretty strategically uh, revealing the Son of Man. Uh, We're looking at the thesis statement in John chapter 20 that would say that these things are written so that we may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And when we believe in him, we have life and so when we've been uh, looking at these things, these, these stories, these sermons in, this, in the Gospel of John, it should be viewed through uh, this paradigm that these are written so that we may know that Jesus is the Son of God. And so uh, last couple of weeks we've been in John chapter 5, and I want to just catch you up. If you, if you remember way back a couple of weeks ago... Um, some of you have slept since then. And so uh, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And this was a big deal that made a lot of people mad. And from there, he began to explain why he has the authority to do such things. And he said that he is equal with God. And one of the things that he did last week is he, he kind of brought us into this metaphorical courtroom, if you if you want to call it that, and he starts to call witnesses, right? Uh, and he gives evidence on why he should be able to speak this way and why he should be able to heal on, on times when healing was prohibited. And he says that he gives evidence. The witnesses that he brings forth are the works, the, the testimony from his father, him, from the father himself, from John the Baptist, to the scriptures. And all of this points to his true identity, as the son of man. But today, he's going to kind of turn towards his accusers, those who would say that he's wrong, those who would say that he's being heretical, and he turns towards them, and he begins to have his closing arguments, so to speak, to say, this is what you're missing. And not only this is what you're missing, this is why you're missing it. So let's pick it up in 39. I know we looked at 39 last week, but I want to kind of get a running start into what we're looking at today. So let's look at verses 39 to 47 together. It says this. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes 
from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There was one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? For the first time in our nation's history, the occupation most desired from the rising generation, Generation Z, is not lawyer, doctor, astronaut, teacher, or professional athlete. This generation simply wants to be famous. They want to be influencers. They want to they reflect the stars on YouTube and TikTok. And this phenomenon has been studied, studied extensively by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, who's a social uh, psychologist. And as he dove into the cross pressures of this generation that is unhappier each year, that is rising quickly with depression and anxiety rates, soaring higher than they ever have, he found that the rise of unhealthy mental states, especially, especially in teenage girls, is in direct correlation with the widespread use of two things, smartphones and social media. And he marks a date, February 9th, 2009. Anybody know where they were on that date? That was Marshall's birthday. Happy birthday, Marshall. Great. That's exactly what I was going to say. He marks February 9th, 2009 as a day that should live in infamy. Because this is the day that fundamentally changed the way that humans sought affirmation, acceptance, and fame. Because this day was the institution of the like button. The like button popped onto the scene on February 9th, 2009. And now your popularity was quantifiable. Your validation could be seen. And researchers have commented on how this little button has changed our brain chemistry, actually. When that little notification that used to be blue and now is red because it, you could pay attention more to red things, right? When that notification little pops up, our brains are hit what's called, with what's called dopamine. And it results in this exhilarating feeling, one that's highly addictive. And this feeling is something that human beings chase after, which explains the constant need to check your feed to get the fix. And commenting on the retweet button, which is Twitter's version of the like button, one executive said this, we might have handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. It's interesting to note as well that the institution, the person that created the like button for Facebook does not use Facebook. And you can see how this would damage not only a teenager, but people. If you wanted to interpret this newly formed generation's cry to be famous, one could simply say that this is a cry to be seen. 
The shout of the 14-year-old wanting to be the next YouTube star tells us something. And this is the reason why the like button and its damages goes way further back than 2009. You see, the power of the like button is rooted in a fundamental human desire. And social media only magnifies its effects. So you thought this was going to be a rant against Gen Z. It's all of us. This is a problem that stretches back to the first humans and Adam and Eve. This is a problem that we've seen in the most famous, most powerful leaders to ever reign. And it's a problem that exists in the household of a stay-at-home mom that just wants to be a good, validated mother. Humans have a fundamental desire for glory. Humans want to be seen and acknowledged and loved and approved of. And here's what Jesus is teaching us today. When we have a misaligned glory and misaligned attention is what I'm calling it, this creates a boundary, a hurdle for belief that leads to disaster. And so the first thing we have to understand is what Jesus means by glory and what I mean by glory. Okay, as Jesus confronts his accusers, he reveals the first boundary of belief as his true identity as Messiah. You, if you've never interacted with this text, you can see that the people are rejecting him, right? And he's trying to convince them that he is the son of man. And there's a hurdle here. And what we see first is Jesus and glory. And look at verse 41. He says, I do not receive glory from men. And so one of the main points that Jesus is making here is that his ultimate identity shaping approval, accreditation, honor, praise, all of that is not found in man, but in God. So when he says, I do not receive glory from men, this is not to say that he doesn't care what people think of him. Because he asked later to his disciples, who do you say I am, right? And he even goes back, if you, read, if you were here last week, he talks about this very idea of, of being validated by the Father and by John the Baptist. So what is he meaning here? He's meaning that the glory that he receives, who he is, it doesn't matter if you reject him. It's not going to diminish who he is. And glory is one of those words, like faith or hope or love. It gets kind of thrown around a lot. Maybe we don't fully grasp what we're saying. We use it like to God be the glory and all those types of things. But the biblical term glory has to do with the status or honor that is bestowed upon someone. And I really wrestled with that definition so y'all should be really thankful, okay? Uh, no, it, it was really hard for me to get to a point like, what is, the, what is the foundational meaning of glory? But one of the ways that we can truly understand it is to bring supreme importance to someone. So when I'm saying, to God be the glory, I'm attributing to him a right status of him. But it's not just the status that we're acknowledging. It's also a state of being. And I want you to kind of hold that in your head for just a second. It's going to come back around. 
Because when we say, to God be the glory, glory to God, we are giving him the honor he is due. And the glory of God is not dependent upon our right acknowledgement of who he is. We didn't extend his glory through, through singing this morning. He was already glorified. But we as human beings are rightly acknowledging the glory, the worth that he is. And the same thing could be attributed to Jesus. That's what he's saying. My worth isn't in your opinion of me. You know, I used to, when I was playing ball, I would have a couple things written on my shoe. And one of those things was uh, GGTG, which was give God the glory. And when I was in seventh and eighth grade, I just thought, you know, if I write that, like couple, my three-point percentage would go up a couple points maybe, okay? Or maybe I could dunk, maybe. Be praying for that forever, I think. But, you know, even in our imperfect ways of saying give God the glory, what we're saying is I'm going to rightly acknowledge who it is that controls all things, who it is that is over all things. But there's another piece that's often missed, and this is the state of being that I was talking about. So it's not only rightly acknowledging who God is, but I want to bring to your attention Exodus chapter 40. If you know what happens in context, this is the end of the book of Exodus. God had freed uh, the people of God, and he had made a covenant with them, and they had built a tabernacle, a dwelling place. To worship, and at the end, that they had built exactly what they, uh, what God had told them to build, to the exact design. And at the end, we read this in, in chapter forty, verses thirty-four to thirty-five. It says then the cloud covering the tent of the meeting, uh, covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here's what's really interesting about this. That glory both involves God's character, God's honor, God's supreme importance, God's holy otherness. But it also involves the manifest presence of himself. In the Exodus, God's glory is made manifest by this terrifying pillar of smoke and fire, something that's unapproachable. You have this manifest presence of God in, in the fire, right? When he, when he shows himself to Moses, seems very unapproachable. The people are scared. When they see Moses go to the top of the mountain, they think he's dead. All of this is the glory of God being manifested. But do you know how God manifests his glory in the New Testament? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh. And what? The word is dwelt. It's the same word for tabernacle in Exodus. Dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we could say is this. Jesus is the personification of God's glory. 
It is God's glory in the flesh. When you want to see God's glory, look at Jesus. Jesus' accreditation, his honor, his praise, his validation comes not from the approval of man, but from he who has sent him, verse 37. Jesus' validation is rooted in God's approval and not the approval of man, the divine accolade, as we'll talk about later. And as he walks in alignment with who God is, God's will, that's why he says, I can do nothing apart from the Father, right? As he walks in alignment with God's will, he glorifies his Father more. Go to read John 17. We'll get there eventually, maybe next year. Okay, but we'll, we'll get there. And he says, I have glorified you. Now you glorify me so that they can glorify you. He's talking about us. And this is why he can confidently say that the love of God is not in them in verses 42 to 43. These people do not love God because their love is upon themselves. They're blinded to the glory of God because they are glorying in, in each other. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying a radical thing. He's saying, I know that you don't love the Father because you don't love me. So what does misdirected glory or misaligned glory have to do with us? And what does it have to do with hindrance to belief? And here we must understand the human desire for glory If you look, it says that there's some other, uh, you do not receive me. Why? Because there's maybe some other people that are coming in your own name. What what he's saying is like there may be some historical basis that there's other messiahs coming and saying, hey, this is, I'm the guy and you you accept them, but I come in my father's name and you reject me. And then verse 44 helps us, right? It helps us kind of answer this question of what, what does it have to do with the hindrance to belief? I'm going to reread this because this is pretty important. I want to camp here for just a second. It says in another translation, how can you ever believe? What's the purpose of the book of John? To believe that he is the son of God. How can you ever believe when you are so busy receiving glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here's what I want to bring to you. It's interesting to note That Jesus is not critiquing glory-seeking. Just misaligned glory-seeking. He's not critiquing this ability to receive glory. It's from whom or from what you're receiving glory from. And so what we have to understand is how the Bible fits together with this theme of glory-seeking. Because God creates human beings with the capacity to do two things, to reflect and to relate to the God that created them. And to be an image bearer is to reflect his image and to relate or connect with our creator. And through that, we connect with other people and love them appropriately. And we were created for this. And and God intends his image bearers to do what? To reflect glory. It's to live into right relationship with God, reflecting his glory and receiving right glory from him. And this is the validation that God is our creator, we are creation. He is our father, we are sons and daughters. And this is where the the fundamental desire for glory comes, a.k.a. the like button, why it feels so good. 
And when we are told we are made in the image of God, we're told that we are to reflect glory. And what that means is you cannot generate glory for yourself any more than a mirror can generate its own light. And if you were to read Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and you read the creation of human beings, what he's saying is this, I want you to so reflect my glory that you fill the world with it. I want you to face me, gaze at me, so that my character is reproduced in you. And the way in which you treat the world, the way that which you treat the people around you will bring life, will flourish. But things get twisted. The image of God, the humans he created, that were meant to reflect him, rebel against him. And what exactly is this image bearer tempted to do? If you go read Genesis 3, there's a couple of things. But I want to point one out. The tempter says, you will be like God. Have you ever thought that we're already like God? We're, we're created in his image. We're the only things created in his image. So we already have that status. So what is he actually tempting us with? You see, in the garden, humans were rightly reflecting and rightly connecting, rightly in relationship with God. They were glorifying God and receiving what they desired, right relationship with with the creator, and that flourished with other human beings. And their status as sons and daughters was unmarred by sin. But our image of God and our glory seeking are connected. Sin doesn't change our image bearing. One of the things that Christians believe and should be champions of is the dignity of human beings no matter the capacity. We are very inclusive because if you're breathing and you're a human, you have worth. You have rights. You have dignity. And that doesn't come from me. That's not my opinion. That's God's creation who gave you breath. And nothing no abuse, not what you've, what's said against you, not what you've done, can rip the dignity from you. You have that. That's a gift. But our glory seeking, that's hurt. It's impacting. It, it, it's impacted by, by sin. And if you want to use the mirror analogy, our mirror is now pointing at other things. Oh, people... That's where I receive my validation. Oh, job, that's where I receive my validation. Status, parent, our mirror is broken. And so here's what we do. The rebellion, the first sin, the rebellion against God was grasping after glory that didn't belong to us instead of resting in the glory that we received. That's what it is. You know, we think about the great exchange. Maybe you've been in church long enough to where you've heard that term, the great exchange. Okay, if you're thinking about it, you probably heard it. It's described as, I exchange my sin for Christ's righteousness. 
Did you know that there was a, another great exchange? Because in Paul's letter in Romans, Romans chapter 1, it says this. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen, exchanged, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1. Here's what sin does. Sin breaks our glory seeking. We are constantly seeking other avenues to fill this desire. Christians can do this all the time. It's it's very hard, right? Like we, me, right now, I can teach and be seeking your glory, seeking your validation as I speak. We can play drums. We can play the guitar. And all these things can be reflecting my goodness, my worth. And sin misaligns this glory-seeking to the extent that we may not even know what we're doing. And we constantly seek other avenues to fulfill the desire to be known and seen, put in creation over creator, to be validated by our own righteousness. The mirror is broken. And here is what I'm giving to you. The modern person's problem that we see in our culture is they're trying to establish an identity. They're trying to establish a way to understand suffering, a way to understand justice without a transcendent God. They have cut him out of their life, but the void of glory is still there. So now I have to seek my own ways of, of figuring out how I'm validated, a.k.a. make me famous. And so this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, this is a hindrance to belief. How can you believe in me when you seek the glory of of one another? When you are concerned about getting glory, when that's how you are getting your validation, how can you share? How can you celebrate your brother and sister being pushed up and saying, wow, look at them when I want the glory? When there's another Messiah coming up and saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Guess what? Let's kill him. Glory hog. You you go to people, other people for validation, honor, and praise, and joy. And listen, when the image of God, when the glory seeking is broken in ourselves, here's what we'll do to people. We'll either use them or abuse them. Use them for my own validation or push them down, abuse them so I feel better about myself. See, our validation can only be found when we have a properly aligned glory-seeking. I love what Paul says in Genesis 1, I'm sorry, Galatians 1. And Eugene Peterson has a way of saying it that's awesome. He says, you know he's pretty punchy in Galatians, right? He, he comes out swinging, okay? It's one of his first writings, and so he's just like ready to go. And so he, he goes, do you think that I speak this strongly in order to manipulate crowds or curry favor with God or get popular applause? If my goal was popularity, I wouldn't bother being Christ's slave. I wouldn't bother with it. I just, I just go and get, seek popularity in my own way. But the third thing we got to realize, that there's a restoration to this broken 
misaligned glory. See, through the scriptures, you see this idea of glory being restored. And the question that I'm going to answer for the rest of our time is how? How how does this happen? And when you think about the full biblical scope of how God interacts with his people, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 21, God seeks to dwell with humanity. He gives us himself. Let's look at one piece. Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. So one of the things that happens right before this is they do exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for creatures, for created beings, right? Because what do they do? They take off all their gold. Moses is dead. He went up into the smoke. What do we do? We need a God. Okay, cool. Let's build one. And so what they do is they take off all their gold. They fashion it together, and they say to this God, this is the God that freed me. This is the God that freed us. That's what they say. Yahweh gets pretty mad. And Moses goes up to meet, meet him, and he goes, you know what your people are doing down there? And Moses mediates. He's the one that goes before God. He goes on the mountain and mediates and says, hold back your wrath. And God does. He relents. And Moses is like, okay, I need some assurances <laughs> that you're not going to kill us all. And so he asks the question. Anybody know what he asks? Show me your glory. Show it to me. So he tells Moses, hey, get behind this rock. I'm going to give you one eye. Get behind the rock. I'm going to pass before you. And his glory passed before Moses. And you know what happened to Moses? He begins to physically reflect the glory of God. As he gazed upon the manifest presence of God, he begins to reflect him physically. As he's walking down the mountain, do you know what happens? The people are scared. He's he's glowing, literally. And it's this transformation to reflect God's glory to other people. And what's awesome is Paul picks up on this. Because Jesus equates himself with the Father. And, and what, one of the things we got to understand is, yes, we're talking about Jesus' divinity here, that Jesus is God. But one of the things that I think is undertaught with this is that Jesus is the prototype image of God. He is what image bearers should look like. It's the one that's unmarred in his reflection and relationship. You see that? Paul would say in first, uh, Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of God. And when you look at Jesus, Mike said this last week, you should see God. And, but you could also see what humanity is supposed to be like. So when Jesus moves towards people who are hurting, is that God or is that humanity? Yes, When Jesus is compassionate for people who are hurting, is that God or is that humanity? 
You see, there was this perfect reflection. The mirror was unbroken between Jesus and the Father. And when you look at Jesus, you're supposed to see the beauty and the glory of God. And Jesus says to them, you believe Moses. And what was Moses' ministry about? 2 Corinthians 3 calls it a ministry of condemnation, ministry of death. I think it's because they saw a lot of death. But it's also because they were under the law itself. There was so much fear. And when Moses came, he, it, it, what's really fascinating, if you read it, he says, there was glory with that ministry. So guess what? How much more glory will come with the ministry of Jesus, is what he says. A ministry of righteousness. And the whole point of Moses' writings was to come, was to, to reveal the God that has come, to, has come to dwell with humanity, to show them how to rightly worship him, how to represent a holy God and know the name of Yahweh. And the only problem is that people couldn't do it. For sure. And so what the Jews were doing is they had all their attention on, the, on Moses, the one, the accuser. They were under the penalty of condemnation. But the whole point of the scriptures is to reveal what Leslie Newbigin calls the cosmic history of the Father. Cosmic history. The creation, fall, redemption, restoration, all point to God's universal history and his plan to make things whole again. Listen, is that not what human beings want through their politics? To make things whole again? It's a shadow of the kingdom of God. Is that not what people want when they say, let me live as free as I want sexually? That's what they want. But the scriptures point to a God that says, this is how I've come to redeem the world. And so he's making a pretty punchy point here, for, especially for a bunch of Christians in Texas. Just because you know the Bible doesn't mean you know God. Just because you knew where I was going in Exodus 34 and Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians 3, just because you knew those things doesn't mean you haven't missed the Messiah. Ian McDonald says it this way, and he's not talking about the Pharisees in this text, but I think it applies. He says the Pharisees had the first five books of the Bible memorized and they couldn't even tell that God was standing right in front of them. <laughs> but here's where Paul comes into play. He says that the veil that's revealing the glory of God has been set aside in the ministry of Jesus because why? Because Jesus is the personification of God's glory. The glory of the Lord has come and dwelt among us. And the veil, as a bride adorned for her husband, is being removed. And this relationship that God has covenanted with his people from the beginning is taking place. So I want to read with you. Actually, hold on. Jesus came. This is why Jesus came, to show us how to rightly worship, to show us how to reflect the Father, and more than that, to enable us to be transformed to his image through his death. And it's not a coincidence that the next thing you'll read in John chapter 6 next week is him equating his body in which he separates for people 
as the manna that has come down to feed. And it's satisfying. And there's actually some left over. And so what Paul, what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3, he says this. Yet still today, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, think about that, sets their gaze, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, listen to this, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Listen, this is where we miss it with discipleship. We can make this into a consumer thing where we come into these doors and just consume words and then walk out unchanged. But the point of discipleship, the point of walking with Jesus is conformity, not information. Discipleship is not just having knowledge about who God is. It's not a transfer of information that tell us the end purpose for those who are in Christ is one day we will look like Christ. And right now, in our community groups, in our Bible studies, in our D groups, these are environments in which we try to foster ways in which we can look like Jesus and be transformed to the image of Jesus. And so when we talk about this, when we look at our church and we go, do we reflect Christ's love to the world? That should be the basis of success in our church. Do we look like him? Do we reflect him? And when your attention, when your gaze is on the glory of Jesus, it transforms whose glory you seek. Instead, we become glory reflectors instead of glory seekers. And it's impossible to do this when we have a misaligned glory and a misaligned attention on what the scriptures say. Dallas Willard says, wherever your mind goes, your life goes with it. So as we conclude, I want to bring up C.S. Lewis because he has a, a great book called The Weight of Glory. And he talks about this idea of glory and he talks about his struggle with it. Because he, he didn't like the term. If, if he would have heard my sermon of talking about glory and validation and equating it to validation and, and praise and honor, he wouldn't really like it. He says that he didn't really like, really like the idea of seeking approval or fame of, uh, or appreciation by God. Until he thought it over, is what he says. Until he thought about it. Because there is truth in the divine accolade, as he says, that we all long to hear. That this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He says when he thinks about the pleasure of a child before its father, the student before its teacher, the creature before its creator, that they would pronounce over them a satisfaction and approval, there is deep desire and satisfaction in this. But it's C.S. Lewis, all right? So he goes the other side real quick, okay? He says, I know, I understand how ugly this can get when we turn from this pronouncement to self-admiration. But he says this, but there is this moment of joy when we please him who we are created to please. 
And he has this money quote right, right here. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Here's the solution for your fundamental desire for glory. Gaze upon Christ. In Christ, the divine accolade is yours. God's pronouncement over Christ is yours. Listen, if there's one thing that's marked my ministry over the last two years, is that I have to stop seeking the validation of people. I have to. It's killing me. And this pronouncement in Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son of whom I am well pleased. Jesus didn't do a lick of ministry before this. And you know what? He actually says it again in Matthew 17.5. You know what he says? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Through Christ, the source of our glory is restored. The mirror is here. The glory you seek is upon us. And when you create your own glory, when it's misdirected, you have to go to so many other places to get your sense of value. It's oftentimes when, we, when people have very successful high school sports and then they get out of it and they, no one's paying attention to me. We have to go to so many other places that gets your sense of value, your beauty, your significance. That's like a mirror trying to light itself. It won't work. You can't believe it. You're made in the image of God. And if you get your beauty and your sense of significance and worth from his love, you're going to have to turn around and worship something else. Because you're made in the image of God. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, when you turn from God, turn away from him. You're going to have to turn to a human being. You're going to have to turn to a family. You're going to have to turn to a job. You're going to have to turn to human approval. You're going to have to turn to professional success. You're going to have to turn to something else that's going to say you're okay. You're going to have to get your glory and significance from something because you are made to, and you can't generate it yourself. Glory seekers that are seeking their own glory will either crush themselves or crush others. Let me give you an example, and I'm done. You know, um, like I said, one of my root sins, this is my root sin, is human approval. Like the very fact that they gave me a microphone is not a good idea, right? But here's what life does. Life kind of kicks that out of you after a while. And you know, one of the things that I probably get the most validation from is my wife. I apologize for just a second. My wife is incredible, but she's a terrible God. When I put my faith in her, it crushes her and it crushes me. Because when she fails me, my God is gone. I can never get enough. And what's that for you? What is that? Is that your job? Is that your spouse? Is that your kids? You want your kids to be well-behaved and seen as, as successful because it, look at me. 
When God is the source of your glory, you can be free to reflect it instead of consuming it. And for discipleship, y'all, all this is, is every day turning your gaze, your soul, to Jesus and resting in the fact that his pronouncement is yours. Turn your gaze to Christ. Turn your attention directly to him, the true image and glory of God. And when you reflect him, you cultivate a love for God and others, and you are free to reflect it and not seek it. Let's respond really quickly. I know I'm a little over time. I apologize. And as we respond, there's a few things that I would ask you to do. For the non-believer, for the skeptic, that's looking at this message going, no, but my past. No, but this. Whatever that hindrance is. Would you just reflect in God coming to dwell with humanity, taking on your sin, taking on your hurt, and giving you life? And for the glory seekers this morning, no one does this perfectly. No one in here is going, yeah, I don't struggle with that. But what do you need to repent of? What do you need to confess? Confession is good for the soul. Because it's rightly acknowledging, hey, I can't save myself. Are you putting too much pressure on your spouse? Is spouse your God? Is money, success, this idea of future I have to have all this together so people will view me as put together. Is that your God? One of the ways you can think about this is, does criticism from a certain person absolutely crush you? It's probably a good indication that's where you're seeking glory. Maybe ask yourself, what would happen if I did something for someone else and I didn't tell a soul, no one patted me on the back. No one said, wow, that was really holy of you. But you're resting in the divine accolade that's yours. Y'all, let's respond. Let's respond through maybe you sitting there in prayer and saying, God, I need you to restore what's broken in me. Let's Let's respond through singing. We're about to see a picture of the washing, a regenerated soul through baptism in just a moment. Maybe let's celebrate that. Whatever it is, I ask you, believer or non-believer, come here every week. This is your first time. Respond. Respond. Spirit, we ask that you would just convict us for what we need convicting. Give us freedom to where we're shackled shackled to the, slave, uh, to the opinions of others. Let's rest in the divine accolade that it's ours in Christ. In you. In you. We're your child. We ask this in your holy name.
Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.